BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Bonnie Ora Shirk began her career as a landscape painter, but then realized she wanted to be in the landscape herself. Her 1970 installation, Portable Park, was a pop-up farm complete with sod trees and cute animals, situated under a San Francisco freeway overpass. Shirk spent her career transforming dead urban spaces into lived experiences, a holistic practice she saw as connecting people to the natural world and each other. There's a new retrospective of her work up at Fort Mason, and it is glorious. We'll talk about Shirk's work, life, and tremendous local impact right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As you walk into the Fort Mason Gallery that's hosting Bonnie Ora Shirk's new retrospective, you're greeted by a glorious glimpse of 1970s San Francisco. In the photo's background, a rundown bit of the city runs up a hill, houses interwoven with urban grit. And in the foreground, a blue pool of water and trash. And in this flooded terrain, a young woman in an evening gown seated on a chair. It's gorgeous, meditative, evocative, and that is Bonnie or a shirk there in the chair at the outset of a long career devoted to weaving together the ecological, the aesthetic, the sociological. As she once said, freeways are beautiful, but they need to be softened. Why use them just for cars? And I feel confident saying if you live here, even if you've never heard of her, you've experienced the ripples outward and direct descendants of her work in our parklets, urban farms, and generally groovy approach to integrating living things into city life. Joining us this morning, we have a full house to talk about this new retrospective at the Fort Mason Center for the Arts and Culture. Up first, to introduce us to Bonnie, who died in 2021, we've got Frank Schmiegel, Director of Arts Programming and Partnerships at Fort Mason Center for Arts and Culture, former curator at SFMOMA, and helped bring this retrospective to Fort Mason. Welcome, Frank. Thanks for having me. We've also got Tanya Zimbardo, who curated Bonnie Ora Shirk Life Frame since 1970, Assistant Curator of Media Arts at SFMOMA. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you. So, Frank, I wanted to start with that piece that I described in the introduction, you know, her sitting in this chair in this evening gown. Um, talk to us about why was that photo so meaningful in her career and why, why does it open the show? Uh, it opens the show in a lot of ways because it's the the first sitting still image um, for a, a, a series of projects that she would do. 
um, taking a, a chair to locations in the financial district, um, also on the, the Golden Gate Bridge, um, in my neighborhood, right in the corner of Market and Church, and basically sitting for an hour, <coughs> excuse me, and having your friend Robert Campbell take photographs of it. And, and the idea was, you know, what does it mean to be a person in space? How does that bring sculpture kind of into everyday life? Um, but perhaps most importantly for the show, she often described that as her watershed piece. Uh, Bonnie was very sensitive to kind of serendipities and rhyming in life and in art. Mm. Um, you know, she saw this uh, runoff basically from the Islaus Creek at the intersection of the 101 freeway that was being constructed at the time. Um, and Cesar Chavez then called Army Street. And she noticed that in this pool of water, there was a floating chair. And mm. so she kind of rushes home, changes into an evening gown, um, grabs Robert Campbell and heads back to the, to the site, um, wades out, sits in the chair, and faces a row of traffic that's slowly moving through the construction site. Mm. And it's a watershed piece because she often said she was facing her future. <laughs> because right across from this would be the eventual site in 1974 of Crossroads Community, the farm, her kind of big mm. social project, a piece, uh, a, a piece, but also a functioning organization she founded with the, the musician Jack Wickert. Um, you know, it was certainly part of that big 70s movement of artists creating their own spaces. Fort Mason shares a little bit in that history. Mm. We were founded three years later, um, you know, trying to kind of take over an old military yeah. infrastructure for new uses. And that's really what Bonnie was thinking, that the, the kind of water runoff could be a new piece. And that eventually led itself to a whole new organization and a way for different neighborhoods. She called it Crossroads Community because the highway had cut off more right. neighborhoods. So how could she knit them back together? So we really wanted to start with this watershed piece that yeah. kind of brings to the table so many aspects of what interested her and what still resonates, I think, yeah, today. That's beautiful. Tanya Zimbardo, give us a little context for what's happening in Bay Area art at the time, right? I mean, I think kind of opens as like, oh, I'm a conceptual artist, perhaps. But then when we look back and we read the work that she did across her career, you see more as like an ecological artist, someone who's working in this environmental lane. Great question. Bonnie had uh, relocated to the Bay Area in 1967 and had studied uh, for her graduate studies at San Francisco State. Um, in the late 60s, there was a really major student strike um, that uh, had a major uh, impact, but also in particular on um, the thinking of her uh, graduate professor, Mel Henderson, and um, her collaborator, Howard Levine, on Portable Parks one through three, her first major public huh. work. Um, they had had this model of an artist who, in 1969, decided to do these major collaborative events that sort of captured the public imagination just as their portable parks would. Um, and one fun example was yellow cabs, in which 100 cabs were all called <laughs> by the artist um, to descend upon the Castron Market, uh, which is like a six-lane intersection. You could never afford that with surge prices. Yeah. <laughs> that would not work. Um, but a kind of proto-flash mob that created this kind of whimsical yellow sunburst, but at the same time was very much a statement about the restrictions on um, political gathering uh, in the mm. streets. And so... Um, I think that Bonnie, you know, there was a larger 
field and, and context of, of political gatherings, of political theater, um, of uh, happenings in the 60s. Um, but she was really interested in thinking about kind of urban space, which is sometimes called dead space or mechanized space, and how could you transform that with something that was living. And so with portable parks and then later the farm um, to bring in forms of life, uh, animals, uh, greening space. And so that was her uh, major proposal. Um, Bonnie, you know, starts um, both doing these projects that involve, you know, getting permits and convincing a lot of different people, <laughs> um, you know, to get behind an idea. But she also, like sitting still, had these sort of unsanctioned, mm, just really sort of simple artwork. performances yeah. she was doing um, as well. And so uh, 1970 is just sort of a key moment. It's also the first Earth Day mm. um, where she's coming to the fore. Uh, she is part of a generation that was embracing new directions in contemporary art, um, including sort of more idea-oriented mm-hmm. work, non-commercial forms like performance and video at the time. Um, and it was a really exciting circle of artists, including um, the Museum of Conceptual Art was founded in that year, for Aunt example. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so then by 74, she creates what she calls the alternative to alternative spaces, um, a, 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 the farm being a model of bringing together diverse um, communities, bridging divides between sometimes performing arts and visual arts that was happening, um, but also um, individuals who are involved in community around organic gardening and around education. And, you know, 75 schools would be visiting there. It was really part of a lifelong commitment to public school education and to creating learning opportunities about the environment. Yeah, one of the most fascinating things is as she's kind of clowning and playing with these bureaucracies, like getting the zoo, she got the zoo to sign off on her eating lunch (laughs) in a cage next to a lion uh, being fed. Um, And then she kind of starts to take on this like bureaucratic role of like, well, I'm actually going to build an organization and I'm going to get 75 schools to visit and I'm going to figure out how to get a hold of this land, at least in some, you know, semi-official short-term capacity. I'm going to do all these things. Um, do you see the lineage there as as being in that kind of made-for-TV event as art too, you know, like this... This ability to draw on these other institutions in the city to draw attention to her art. We've been working a lot with the the archive throughout this this, uh, process, and there's – and Tanya can speak more about this. There's wonderful letters in there. Um, Her third portable park was a 48-hour event on Maiden Lane off Mm -hmm. of Union Square with turf and llamas and cows. And in the archive is a, is a, are several letters from participants, the, the Nunez farm that provided the turf, and also a thank you from Saks Fifth Avenue um, <laughs> that mentioned, like, you know, you're, you really should think about, you know, a, a, a side gig because you're a master of publicity. And, mm-hmm. and it's true that these portable parks, she knew how to engage the media, how to create you know, what she would call a surreal juxtaposition to really attract the attention of people who weren't necessarily art specialists. I mean, she Mm -hmm. wanted to bring 
these kind of effervescent ripples into into everyday life. Yeah. Um, and she, in her thesis too, she talks about um, for San Francisco State how she wanted to kind of keep documentation as well part of her process. Yeah. You know that she was going to keep all this information about the bureaucracies she worked with. And and I think even Tanya Wright, she she exhibited her resignation letter from the farm. So she was kind of interested <laughs> in paperwork as an art form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she also often referred to that she got her PhD in life running the farm because she was doing everything from washing dishes to applying for all of the grants mm. and um, definitely had been honing her skills with the media. And part of it was that she was also trying to get a lot more community um, support in different stakeholders, um, at one point also trying to get the city to buy the adjacent lot to create a city, city park and, you know, getting 11,000 signatures for that. Um, so she really, you know, was sort of an advocate for her ideas, but sometimes, yes, would come up against um, the fact that some of her, her vision, especially, I think, for like the natural resources being used for the mm. farm, um, it may have seen sort of been more utopian uh, in terms of a more kind of traditional um, city or government, you know, bodies that she was interfacing with uh, in terms of their perception of what she was trying to explain. Uh, we have a wonderful collage in the show of something that was a, a kind of vision of what the farm could be, including a cafe and um, green area. And she literally like rolled that up and took it to meetings <laughs> in this wonderful collage that is like animal and flower stickers. But... I love the stickers, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like you get a little bit of that fun and you get a little bit of that like um, even though she's working with the bureaucracy, she's not really of it. Right. That's not how a bureaucrat puts together a proposal for a park. Uh, we're talking about the retrospective of San Francisco artist Bonnie Ora Shirk's work at the Fort Mason Center for the Arts and Culture. It's up now through March 10th, 2024, of course. Joined by uh, Tanya Zimbardo, who's curator of the show, which is called Bonnie Ora Shirk, Life Frame Since 1970. Also joined by Frank Schmiegel, Director of Arts, Programming, and Partnerships at Fort Mason. Help bring the show to that space. We'd love to hear from you. Did you go to the farm, Community Crossroads or the farm, as a kid or as a student? Did you encounter one of Bonnie Ora Shirk's work you know, live in your life. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on any of our social channels or KQED forum, or you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the retrospective of San Francisco artist Bonnie Ora Shirk's work up at Fort Mason Center for the Arts and Culture up now through March 10th, 2024. <laughs> we're uh, hoping to hear from people who were, you know, part of the San Francisco art scene in the 70s, 80s, or 90s. Do you encounter Bonnie Ora Shirk's work? Maybe you went to the farm as a kid or student. We'd love to hear that. You can email forum at kqed.org. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Joined by the folks who helped get this thing put together, Frank Schmiegel at Fort Mason Center, Tanya Zimbardo, curator of the show. I want to add a, a couple other voices to our conversation. John Bailey, uh, Bela, I'm sorry about that, John Bela. Um, urbanist and artist, created the garden space in conjunction with the retrospective at Fort Mason, co-founded Rebar, currently a, a partner at Urban Field Studio. Welcome, John. Thank you, Alexis. Great to be here. Also joined by Ray Alexandra, staff writer with KQED Arts and Culture, here brightening the studio with perfect pink hair. Uh, she's the creator and author of Rebel Girls from Bay Area History. Welcome, Ray. Hello. Always a pleasure. So, Ray, um, we both went to the exhibit, but I want to know, what were you taken by? Like, what did you get sort of drawn in by in this work? Um, I was struck by how incredibly immersive it was initially. Um, and then I realized... I did not give myself enough time. Like, this is a journey through Bonnie's entire life, and it's step by step, and it's kind of this wonderful through line of how her desire to challenge how humans used public space ultimately turned into ecology in action, mm -hmm. and watching the process she went through to get there is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, like at first, it, it some of these things seem more like spectacle or stunt. But by the time you get to the end of her life, you actually really can trace it back and say like, oh, there was a through line. There was this thing happening. Yeah, and it, it actually makes a lot of sense because one of the first, I mean, as you enter, there are four large scale projections um, of her work. And in one of them, she's pacing up and down uh, outside the Broadway tunnel in San Francisco and you feel the anxiety of it and then you walk around the corner and then you're immersed in ephemera from the farm and you see her, you know, tranquility being at the farm and you go, well, that makes perfect sense because, you know, when you see the juxtaposition, you understand where she's coming from. I also love that in that section on the farm, there's a bunch of the flyers of other organizations that had done stuff at the farm and you kind of get this you know, I mentioned earlier Ant Farm, you know, there's like one of the guys from Ant Farm is there, but also right later on, like punk bands played there and, and community events and all kinds of other stuff. Yeah, the punk period happened in the mid 80s. And uh, the thing that really strikes me is that these were not little bands. It was Black Flag and the Descendants <laughs> and like major players. And they're all playing at a farm in the middle, of, like next to a freeway. It's yeah. really hilarious. I do love that it's just like possible to make a part of the city magical by like pure will. You know, if you go uh, and, and you if you go to the show or you start Googling around about the farm, you'll see some before and after photos of just, you know, we're talking about this is just under the freeway. Like, you know what this looks like. And then suddenly it's been transformed into this uh, beautiful green space. Um, John Bela, let's talk a little bit about your first your role in this show. And then I want to get your take on kind of how you see Bonnie as like an intellectual ancestor. Sure, sure. Um, so you mean my role? In yeah, your role in this Bonnie show. Yeah, yeah well, um, you know, I guess two or three months ago, Frank reached out and said, hey, we're doing this exhibit on Bonnie's work. And of course, I knew about Bonnie's work, uh, having met her several times uh, over the, you know, in the last decade or so. 
Um, and when Frank said, hey, would you do a pop-up teaching garden in honor for work and legacy? I immediately said yes, just knowing how, you know, Bonnie's uh, portable parks preceded Rebar's parking day by 32 years. And, and it was only after we sort of launched the parking day project, everyone we spoke to said, you have to meet Bonnie. You've got to meet Bonnie. And uh, when I finally did meet her, we had, you know, a, a long conversation. And, um, and, you know, she just struck me as a really uh, kind of sympathetic and kind of gentle soul, but that's a counterpoint to the sort of forceful, you know, <laughs> power of her work, um, both sort of, you know, addressing the kind of legacy of uh, auto dominance in San Francisco by reclaiming space from the car, but also really being a pioneer in, in rematriation, yeah. right? Actually reclaiming land for, you know, connecting back to the earth, connecting back to uh, you know uh, uh, the kind of the, the vitality that that is underneath now under all the asphalt that covers our city right, streets. Right. Oh my gosh, um, you let us into a call uh, here, John. Uh, Daniel in Piedmont worked with Bonnie. Welcome to the show. Uh, hi. Thanks so much. I was uh, really excited to hear about this because I worked with Bonnie. We worked on a, in a group called Sesepuede. Yes, We Can, which was CC for Cesar Chavez, mm-hmm. uh, redoing Cesar Chavez Street. Uh, there were a whole bunch of people working on that, and it was essentially a traffic calming for this major thoroughfare. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of movers and shakers, uh, Jillian Gillette, and a number of other people were, were in that group, and it actually won the uh, Golden uh, Wheel Award from the SF Bike Coalition yeah. for that work. But Bonnie was in that group. What was she like? Tell, tell us I about was, her as like a person. She, so as a person, she was single-mindedly, I would say, a chaos agent <laughs> in this regard. <laughs> chaotic good, of course. Chaotic good. It. No, absolutely. I mean, but I mean, she drove me insane at the time. But... Her vision was to take Cesar Chavez Street, this major thoroughfare that went right onto um, this crazy, uh, loopy uh, on-ramp system that people call the, I forget what they call it now, it was the um, hair knot, they call it, because it was so intertwined. She wanted to... She wanted it to represent the creek system that was underneath it. So she wanted, in the middle of it, to sunlight the creek... She wanted the entire thing instead of being straight, and you know we were to like follow the curve of the original creek bed. Wow. She want yes. She wanted it to to be S snake snake shape Hmm. to represent the the water flowing underneath it, and then uh, the farm was actually underneath the hairball originally. So this all tied into original work, but at every moment I came in and I just wanted my kids. (laughs) <laughs> who hadn't existed yet, but my kids to be able to cross the street without being scared. And she wanted it to represent the... the, the I love that. Shed. And we had, more, we had more discussions about the watershed mm. instead of how to get bureaucrats uh, to... Yeah. But, but, it, but, it, but elements got integrated. Yeah, and, yeah. And there was, as you said, there was, a, there was a tie to original work and now I can't wait to take my kids to this. Oh, show. you got to see it. Amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. Daniel, thanks so much for that. That's a great That's a great call. And I, you know, I mean, this gets at a kind of central tension of the work in general. We'll take it to you. I mean, you 
do these things as well, right? And there's this tension between wanting to have that underlying ecological or hydrological knowledge, you know, represented and coming into the world. And also, you know, guy wants his kids to cross the street safely, you know, uh, that that tension, I'm sure, can continues to exist. Sure. And, and it certainly exists, you know, at, uh, at the uh, pop-up garden at Fort Mason, which is a former military base, right? Former military base sitting on top of, of former Bayland, right? Mm-hmm. Former Bayland, which is, you know, a Yalamo and Ohlone territory, right? Yeah. So we're inheriting that whole legacy of, you know, uh, of, uh, of genocide, colonization, and trying to, you know, I think this is what Bonnie was doing, was beginning that process of reconnecting, of, of opening up opportunities to connect people to natural systems in, a, in not just a symbolic way, but actually a powerful, meaningful way. And there is that tension because we live in a dense urban environment. How do we, you know, connect back to the kind of natural forces? Uh, how do we connect back to our, our collective history yeah. and connect to, you know, I- indigenous knowledge, ways of knowing that can inform how we adapt to, you know, a, a changing future and climate adaptation. Yeah. And that's really, you know, why, why we reached out to Tere and the folks at Hummingbird Farm. You know, I think they're very much putting in practice uh, the spirit of Bonnie's work, you know, through their work in, in, in the southeast uh, or, or uh, in the Excelsior district. And so, so important for us, you know, when we garden, uh, uh, Frank and I talked about the garden. A garden's not an object. It's an experience. It's a verb. Mm. Gardening is a verb. It's mm-hmm. a process. And part of that process requires and invites stewardship. Um, and so that was really critical to this pop-up garden that it not just be sort of symbolic of Bonnie's work, but actually connect it to hmm. her legacy in, yeah. a, in a deep way. Oh, man. Well, let's bring in um, Tare Almaguer. She's an environmental justice organizer with Poder, and she works with Hummingbird Farms, a seven-acre urban farm in San Francisco, which is collaborating uh, on this garden. Welcome, Tare. Thank you. Um, just wanted to say that Bonnie was inspirational in being someone that reclaimed public land for community. Um, I started working as a community organizer in the 90s um, in the mission, and at that time we had less than 1% of all the parks in the city but the highest number of kids. Um, when the farm opened in 1970, I was born in 1976 and my family lived on Bryant and wow. 25th. I don't remember going, but as I've talked to my friends, um, just want to give a shout out to Elena Royal, who's currently teaching at O'Connell. <laughs> she really has beautiful memories of the animals. She uh, the would chickens, go there huh? and Probably, like, yeah. touch, there was goats, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think it was really important to create this space because we were in this super urban jungle where there was no access to land, yet the majority of our parents and grandparents were farm workers who had migrated here to the city. Um, And so I work with Poder. We're a 30-year-old environmental justice organization. And Hummingbird Farm is an organizing victory with our youth program, Urban Campesinex, which is uh, uh, used to reclaim that connection to land Mm -hmm. and to being farm workers, organized to reclaim public land for healing from the legacy of environmental racism in Southeast San Francisco, and as an act to contribute towards climate justice and the healing of our planet. Um, we're grateful to the Ramatush Ohlone, the living ancestors that are still here, and we're grateful to the SFPUC because we're on SFPUC uh, land. I was going to say, how has it been interacting with that bureaucracy? I mean, we're, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> there's everything in the bag, right? But we're grateful that we have the opportunity to grow ancestral food, seeds, medicinal plants, and we're restoring one of the last of the native grasslands in San Francisco, oh, wow. and we're really looking towards the California natives to take leadership. Mm-hmm. 
And it's so important that we restore these grasslands because their roots are so deep that a lot of times they sequester more carbon than forests, right? Mm -hmm. You you know, um, I'm also fascinated because, you know, some environmental justice, in fact, a, a lot of environmental justice battles can be dry and dusty, right? They come down to like, well, this many parts per million of this thing and there's these particulate emissions and and you, it can almost sort of rob what is like a a beautiful conceptual terrain of like wanting to reclaim the space and rematriate space into this this other category. So what has it been like to do that more experiential side of environmental justice alongside, you know, the organizing work that you're doing. So this this project is all being led by our members and our youth, right? And so what we're sharing at the Bonnie uh, Ora Shirk uh, community garden right outside, the healing yeah. garden right outside, is what we've learned, right? What people want. So it's not like we're saying this is what you need to do, right? It's about we all carry that ancestral wisdom because San Francisco is blessed to have so much wisdom uh, from all over the world um, in making elderberry chia jam to help with our immunity and making uh, arroyo willow oil for when we have those aches and pains, right? For making calendula salve, which we made last week, um, for any kind of healing where... um, uh, you know, our skin needs love. Um, I think during COVID, we were able to create uh, gathering spaces mm. where there was none available, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, Bonnie kind of like uh, emulated this with the punk scene, right? Like we've had <laughs> bomba, capoeira, quince mm-hmm. practices, Aztec dancing, uh, uh, rising right. rhythm, loco yeah. bloco, drumming, right? And so all of that is super healing. And especially when it's in a garden, right? There's like, and I guess what to answer your question, it's that feeling, right? That feeling of sticking your fingers in the soil, yeah. that feeling of um, we just we're sunlighting a new creek um, with with the wetland restoration led by Sochil Flores at Hummingbird Farm, and um, it's been amazing. Like we have this new creek that <laughs> we're working, hopefully, with the Ramatashaloni Association to rename, right? And um, and just to see kind of like the maps and how Bonnie like had all the watersheds super mapped mm-hmm. out, and just the importance of relationship to water. We've all seen what happened in Standing Rock. We've all seen this battle with uh, um, uh, different, uh, you know, oil companies and, and you know, what that living that contradiction is, right? Where we're all in our cars, but, you know, we're also seeing that yeah. it's killing our planet and ultimately, like, hurting us, right? And all the ecosystems. Yeah. And so I think it's about having those conversations. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about the retrospective of San Francisco artist Bonnie or Shirk's work at the Fort Mason Center for the Arts and Culture and the reverberations through our society now, our city and our region. The show's up uh, through March 10th. Uh, we've got a full house here in Studio B. We're uh, joined by Tare Almaguer, who is an environmental justice organizer at Poder and also works with Hummingbird Farms, which is a collaborator in the Shirk Retrospective Healing Garden outside um, the show. She's working on that with uh, John Bela, an urbanist and artist. We've also got the curator of the show, Tanya Zimbardo, and we've got Frank Schmiegel, who's director of arts programming and partnerships at Fort Mason. And I've got Ray Alexander here to support me through this difficult time of <laughs> talking about 1970s art. Uh, she's a staff writer, of course, KQED arts and culture and creator and author of the Rebel Girls from Bay Area History series. Um, I want to get to kind of uh, how revolutionary this way of thinking about gardens was at the time. And Tanya, I'm going to bring you back into it as a you know, kind of a historian of this era. You know, there's been gardens in cities forever. You know, there's been parks in cities forever. So what was different about this 
particular conception uh, of, of a garden or a farm in the city? I think with Bonnie that she was interested in um, not just the the sort of physical transformation of the landscape, but um, the idea of creating places that hosted simultaneous activities, um, and that also what she talked about often with her concept of framework called a living library is this sort of various forms of knowledge, different disciplines um, could be expressed in the landscape and through, especially through public programming. Um, she really programmed landscapes. So it wasn't just the idea um, when she started to enter the arena of landscape architecture of thinking of, okay, this might be a very elegant garden path, um, but rather that you could um, be through programming, revealing layers of history of a site, celebrating local resources and diversity. She had a really inclusive way of thinking about um, the idea of hands-on curriculum. And um, so I think that uh, it was not, I mean, it was absolutely in dialogue with a kind of rich history of um, community gardening Mm -hmm. um, in the Bay Area, especially I'm thinking of um, such figures as Ruth Asawa, Mm -hmm. um, who uh, was very active with arts education. Um, But Really, the idea of it's also bringing in that happening stuff yeah. from her, yeah. kind of like SF State. And maybe I, I don't know, Ray. Maybe you um, agree or disagree with this, but it also feels like it's there's something about the way the weaving together of the urban and the the natural or the the living world that feels a little bit different from setting it off in its own kind of space. Well, I mean, especially if you look at the portable parks, Mm -hmm. that was happening, that started in 1970. And at the time, that was, I mean, it looks whimsical, and it looks a little bit silly, um, a little bit childhood fantasy. But it was super radical at the time. Because in the early 70s, you know, in the 1960s here, it was basically about, you know, progress was about more concrete. And for her to come out and manage to make that statement, and yeah. say something very intelligent, but doing it in this very whimsical way was very, very yeah. smart, I think. And um, so fun. Uh, we're talking about the retrospective of San Francisco artist Bonnie Orshirk's work up at Fort Mason Center for the Arts and Culture. We're going to talk more about what was uh, particular about her, her vision and why it was so special. But we also want to hear from you. You know, have you encountered kind of the legacy of Bonnie or Shirk around you? You know, did you run into her work uh, as a child going to the farm and seeing the chickens and petting the goats? Or maybe there's a parklet around the corner from your house and you've realized how uh, this work informed the creation uh, of that kind of space. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Or you can go on any of the social things and uh, find us there too. I'm Alexis. Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about a new retrospective up at Fort Mason Center for the Arts and Culture. It's San Francisco artist Bonnie Ora Shirk. It's beautiful work, ties into so many of the themes of our area. Uh, Ecology, dealing with insane bureaucracy. It's great. Um, We're joined by Frank Schmiegel, Director of Arts Programming and Partnerships at Fort Mason Center for Arts and Culture. Tanya Zimbardo, who is the curator of the show, which is called Bonnie Ora Shirk, Life Frame Since 1970. John Bela and Tara uh, Tare uh, Almaguer are involved in a healing garden, which is right outside of the show. And we're also joined by Ray Alexander, staff writer at KQD Arts and Culture. You know, right before the break, we were talking about kind of the particular nature of Bonnie Orishirk's vision and its relationship to gardens and cities, which of course have existed, but she had a sort of particular vision of it. And I wanted to come to you, John, on to kind of provide some more context on the other artists who are kind of working in different veins, trying to reimagine our relationship to the living world. Yeah, I just wanted to mention, um, you know, the work of an artist who is working at the same time that Bonnie was doing the pop-up parks in the 70s in San Francisco, appropriating urban spaces to sort of transform our understanding of life in the city. You had, you know, uh, Gordon Matta-Clark, who was working in lower Manhattan in the 1970s, uh, cutting holes in buildings. You know, at that time, many cities, lower Manhattan had been abandoned. And sort of, you know, there's these forlorn spaces. Um, Matta-Clark also acquired all these slivers of real estate that were created as as the result of surveying errors. And he proposed a whole series of, of projects on those sites. He, he died rather young. But the idea that there were these unscripted spaces mm-hmm. in the city as an artistic medium is, was really the source of inspiration for Rebar, but also, I think, a counterpoint to the land art movement of the time, which was like, go outside the city. Right. Go to the sort of unspoiled terrain to make your art, whereas Bonnie was like, no, the art, the practice is here. Right. The practice is working with our urban environment uh, here. Tari? And you know, and Bonnie was all about the relationships with each other, with the land, with all living things, with animals at the mm-hmm. zoo, and really having access. And at Hummingbird, we have no fences, right? And so it's really about how are we learning collectively how to steward these these lands mm-hmm. together where we all have access. There is no fences, right? And I think it's really about connecting land struggles all over the world in solidarity with mm-hmm. indigenous people in Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Palestine. And when you honor the land, you honor its people. And so how are we creating opportunities through this work as Bonnie and really letting the world know, you know, you can't um, destroy a land and, and say that you're honoring it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in, we have some uh, great, callers. Let's bring in Virginia in San Francisco. Welcome, Virginia. Thank you. So when uh, my daughter was a baby and a toddler, we lived on Potrero Hill right across, I mean, really near the farm. And we walked over this overpass and we would walk down into the farm. And it was a wonderful experience because I grew up on a farm and it was such a pleasure for me to be able to give my daughter that chance to see animals and things growing and right in the middle of the city and it was in such a a surprising place yeah 
I mean, was it uh, as groovy and fun as it sounds in retrospect? Like, were you like, wow, this place is amazing? Or were you like... I was like, this place is amazing. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) so good. Um, Well, I hope you get to uh, share with your daughter that you got to uh, remember this. I will. I will. (laughs) We actually still talk about it sometimes. Oh, really? Oh, that's so great. Hey, thank you, Virginia. Um, Let's go right to uh, Andy in San Francisco. Welcome, Andy. Hello. Um, I was the director of the farm between wow. 1983 and 1986. But more importantly, we have the new farm in San Francisco, which is a direct offshoot of the original farm. Oh, that's so cool. Where is it, Andy? It's down in the Bayview, 10 Cargo Way, across from Heron's Head Park. Got it. And what was... Um can we talk a little bit about what it was like to run the farm in the mid eighties? I mean, this is, um, you know, Ray and I were talking about this earlier. This is kind of during the punk era of, of the farm. Yeah. Yes. I was sort of, you know, when I took over, um, Bonnie had left and had been gone for a few years Mm -hmm. and we were sort of, we needed a new model. And by some chance we were able to become, uh, place of entertainment and a dance hall. We went through the permit process and was able to get our permits, so we were able to sort of support the thing, rock and roll. Yeah. Gosh, man, what a legacy. Ray, is there anything you want to ask about that? Oh, my God. I've got so many (laughs) questions. We'd be here for four days. Um, I'm interested in uh, the, the switch from going from quite a peaceful... Uh, farm community for children and then having it shift into a hardcore punk venue. (laughs) Like, how does that work? What did that look like? It was all, we didn't lose anything. I mean, we would do shows and then get up the next morning and lead tours of the farm. So the whole, the whole basic thing, you know, we did art shows and we did everything that Bonnie was doing, though with less, you know, it was the 80s and funding was a lot harder to come by and so we just thought you know we just developed this model so we had enough money to pay the rent wow. and, uh, through the That's punk amazing. shows and punk. yeah the punk shows were really wild um, <laughs> hey andy <laughs> um you should uh i'm, I'm gonna go to some other folks here but um give your info and we'll hand your info off to ray oh god please. so that way you know if there's any archival stuff you can you guys can work it out just you know gotta gotta do um gotta do the archival work at, at all times um i want to talk a, um a little bit about bonnie's later career and um i would love to love to bring you uh back in frank on sort of where did all this stuff go? Well, you know, we've been talking about these these different elements of her work. Where did it end up kind of landing later in her career? Well, just hearing about the the new farm and obviously working um, with with Tede and Hummingbird, like it's interesting to see models evolve, um, take new sources, change. And you know, Bonnie, when she moved to New York after she had resigned from the farm, had another one of these serendipitous visions um, at Bryant Park at the main branch of the New York Public Library. Mm-hmm. You know, and at the time, Bryant Park wasn't known for fashion shows; it was more known for for being a needle park, mm-hmm. as Bonnie often often described it. And there. She 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 has this vision of like what if I took the li- the the knowledge of the library out into the landscape 
how would that kind of change our own input going back into the library? So we have a, a beautiful drawing in the show that Tanya might be able to talk more about where she basically takes the Dewey Decimal System, if we all remember library numbers from being a kid, which is from like zero to what, like a <laughs> thousand or 10,000, yeah, a thousand, um, and graphs how each different nook in Bryant Park could correspond to a body of knowledge, the geology park, the mathematics park. Um, you know, how could we think in the way, you know, what's been remarkable just being on site when Teddy has been working with our audience is how, is how that embodied knowledge is kind of not kidding. You're kind of not kidding. Like people are just shocked that they can do this, that it's not just a looking opportunity or a buying opportunity, that there's actually a knowledge sharing mm -hmm. and, and a kind of hands-on. And that's what it means, I think, to take the, the library, the, the books out of the library and embed them, mm. you know, in the garden. And that then really kind of moved to her founding, I don't have the exact dates, of, of a living library as an organization that could mm -hmm. kind of keep doing this. Oh, you know, we actually have a board member of uh, LifeFrame, Stephen in San Francisco. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, good morning, Alexis, and, and to Tanya and Frank and Tyree. Um, actually, I live in the Crocker Amazon Excelsior District, and I'm on the board of directors of Life Frames uh, and uh, Living Library, um, which is actually the Living Library. One of them is at, situated under the, the Islaus Creek, mm -hmm. um, under Alamany Boulevard, Tayuga, and under the football field at uh, Belleville High School. Mm. And um, I've been on the board now. Um, Bonnie passed away it'll be two years ago. I've been on the board about that time, um, right after Bonnie passed away. But I've known Bonnie since 1998 when we she she approached me because she knew I wrote grants um, for <laughs> fundraising, and we got um, we got a hundred and fifty thousand dollar grant back um, in 2000 from the Ford Foundation. Mm. And um, and we're going absolutely strong. We yeah. get funding from the state. We get funding from the city. We just got funding for Roosevelt Park in New York City, which um, it, yeah. it's the sister living library. Um, first time ever that New York has actually given us money to to continue yeah. Bonnie's vision and work. Um, this this if any if you have any inkling on going to Fort Mason. Tanya did a great job <laughs> on putting some of these archives together. Yeah. Oh, Tanya. They really are very... It's so beautiful. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. It's an, it's an amazing show. And, you know, I think the... what um, Thanks so much for that, that call, Stephen. You know, it's, it's interesting to think about legacy in this context, right? Because... It's not a legacy of selling a huge museum, you know, piece for the museum to go into SF MoMA. Instead, the legacy is literally this living thing. These organizations that have gone on or, you know, as Andy was saying uh, earlier, you know, this land, once it had kind of been brought alive, it just found all these other uses and it's, it's still a park. There's still all these things happening. So um, maybe you can talk about uh, about that a little bit, Tanya, of like, you know, how to think about the legacy of an artist who wasn't trying to just sort of entrap things in the museum. Yes, I mean, I think that Bonnie, um, as an artist, was able to, on one hand, have a career in which she was um, 
especially in more recent years, the last time I saw her as she was leave as I was leaving her home in Bernal Heights, she was telling me about shows she was in in um, in Spain and in Portugal, and was so excited that her work was being embraced because of um, the sort of groundbreaking nature of artists who work um, in with community and in social ways. Um, a, a real attention these days to artists and the legacy of artists who've been thinking about the environment and, um, you know, from ecofeminism mm-hmm. to um, other forms of uh, sort of just pioneering thoughts there. Um, but the legacy that for Bonnie was also so important was a living library in that mm-hmm. this is, you know, her life work and it is a living work. And yeah. here in the Bay Area, um, and this is probably one of the another moment of synchronicity with Excelsior being both for Hummingbird Farm, but also where um, Bonnie set up um, one of her what she called branch libraries. It's um, <laughs> Uh, James Denham School, Balboa High School, um, Leadership High and San Miguel Development Center, all of these sort of nesting schools um, since 1998. She's been working with the communities there to um, transform these concrete yards into to gardens and other, you know, green job skills training. And so, you know, her work with like thousands of youth not only was at the farm, but has continued mm. from that time. Um, and one other thing is that she created... Um, as part of a living library, a Bernal Heights nature walk. Um, and mm-hmm. there are these signs that you can encounter um, along, you know, from Holly Park, alongside Alamany Farm, um, that reveal they look like sort of flowers and butterfly, um, different information about the landscape. Uh, and it was something during the pandemic um, when I would take walks in the neighborhood where I just, it was nice to sort of encounter um, them and also mm-hmm. think of these kinds of gifts uh, in in different ways that Bonnie has left us. Love it. I would also just say that anytime you're sitting in a public parklet in San Francisco, you are inheriting the legacy of Bonnie's <laughs> yeah. work, right? Yeah. She, she reclaimed urban space for green space, and that's part of what has unfolded all over the city and all over the world today. So yeah. her legacy really reverberates globally in terms of that, you know, artist insight taking action that then catalyzes a much larger sort of, you know, citywide and even global transformation of the use of urban space. Absolutely. Love that. Um, let's uh, bring in uh, Gregory in San Francisco. Welcome, Gregory. Hey, thanks, Alexis, for um, putting on the show. Um, uh, really, uh, uh, I've known Bonnie for a long time. My mother was the uh, landlord, her landlord at the farm um, <laughs> in San Francisco. <laughs> And the, that property was owned by my mom and her two sisters. Wow. Um, wow. And uh, I think my uncle was 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 my my one of one of her partners, sort of. And uh, maybe Don got Bonnie into that property to begin with. And ah. I don't know exactly what their relationship was, but it was friendly. It was a good sure. one. Yeah, it was a good one. And then um, Marilyn, my mom, became pretty close to Bonnie and at times it was contentious. They couldn't make the rent. And, uh, you know, I can remember her on the phone saying, you know, you've got to pay that rent. And, um, hence the punk shows uh, later on, you know, <laughs> well, eventually, you know, that, 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 the, the upper part of the farm above, above where the animals were kept was turned into, a, you know, kind of a music venue. And, um, my siblings and I put on a, 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 a you know, a paid, we, we charged money to come in for a party called Sex, Fear, and Cars, and we subletted from our own tenant at that oh. time. Um, oh, I think that was probably 1979 or 70, yeah, oh. probably 1979. Um, but anyway, um, 
you know, what a, you know, we, we, we can thank her for the La Raza yeah. park yeah. And, and the community garden beside it. Um, and then I think keeping that space open for, uh, what became, um, uh, Mark Pauline and, uh, and Matt Heckard and the guys that put together, uh, um, survival research laboratories. I think it opened up a lot of space for artists right there in yeah. the, in San Francisco. So, hey, Gregory, thanks, uh, thanks so much. I love um, on shows like this how you know at participants in the history end up like kind of calling in, and we get this little kaleidoscope of like you know this one one person uh, and the way that they move through the city. I mean, Bonnie said in in a couple interviews that the you know the one of the original impulses for the farm was that she wanted to start a cafe like an artist run cafe where people could just like hang out and, and mix and mingle. So this, this idea of just, you know, creating a communal space was kind of always on her mind. Yeah. And this last Saturday, you know, uh, our pop-up park was finally complete. Yeah. Today and folks from Hummingbird Farm and Urban Campesinics were leading a workshop. You know, it, it really all came together in that moment. It was a living library. It was just a delightful experience. So many kids, people from different backgrounds together and it, it's ongoing. You know, there's, there's six, seven, seven more weeks of workshops open. Teta, you can tell us a little bit yeah. about what's yeah, coming. Yeah. So I think something beautiful about Bonnie was that she set up the space for these connections to continue to grow. And so if you want to come visit us on Sundays at 11 a.m. and 1 p.m., we want to invite you to workshops that we'll be having in Query Ecology. We will be working with Arroyo Willow Oil for, like, all your body aches. And <laughs> it's one of the original aspirins. We're going to have a tea bar. We're going to be infusing water with herbs. We're making medicinal honey. This is for the whole family. We've had mostly kids and elders that have been <laughs> a part of it, and it's just been fun. And I think just how Frank mentioned earlier, it's um, it's so easy to be connected and, and make your own, and that's something that's been taken away from us, and Bonnie's legacy has allowed us to just have that reconnection. Our group is Urban Campesinex is fundraising to participate in an exchange with Organización Boricua in Puerto Rico. Mm. And so, um, you know, how do we continue to learn internationally and continue to grow and, and have these uh, conversations as we green up our spaces um, for healing, right, for ourselves and, and for the planet. Got it. So, you know, we haven't said the word ecotopian, but now that I've remembered the paperback cover of the book, Ecotopia, I'm like, man, they stole it all from Bonnie. We've <laughs> uh, been talking about the environmental artist Bonnie Ora Shirk. She died in 2021. There's a retrospective of her work, mostly here in San Francisco, also a couple pieces in New York, um, that is up at the Fort Mason Center for the arts and culture through March 10th. You heard there's also uh, workshops going on uh, on Sundays. We've been joined by Frank Schmiegel, Director of Arts Programming Partnerships at Fort Mason, former curator at SF MoMA. We've been joined by Tanya Zimbardo, who curated the show and works at SF MoMA as well. John Bela, urbanist and artist. Tere Almaguer, who's an environmental justice organizer with Poder and also works with Hummingbird Farms and is working on the retrospective garden uh, with John. And our own Ray Alexandra, staff writer at KQED Arts and Culture, wrote up the show. You can go take a look at that. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Go make some land come alive. Stay tuned for another hour of Form Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country... We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.